Welcome to Crash Course with me, Michael Walker. Um, I'm taking a short break from the Palestine series um, and doing here a one-off episode on another issue that has fascinated me this month. It's the re-election of Naib Bukele in El Salvador. Um, I did a sort of 10-minute segment of this on my Navarra Live show and just thought I have to do um, an hour's show for my Crash Course podcast because it's so interesting. Now, why is it so interesting? Well, El Salvador, it's a fairly small country in Central America. It has a population of just 6 million people. We don't talk about it that much. Um, But this election result could have reverberations around the region. And that poses some moral and strategic challenges for the left, I think. In short, Bukele is incredibly popular and he's incredibly popular because he's been incredibly effective at stamping out crime. And he's done so in a very, very illiberal fashion. You know, prison abolition might be attractive in some circles in the global north, but Bukele had a different strategy. He locked a lot of people up. And the people of El Salvador appear to love it. In all the history of the world, since democracy has existed, never has a project won with the amount of votes that we have won today. It is literally the highest percentage in all history. Whether Bukele's 83% of the vote is the highest in all of human democratic history, um, that's debatable. But he is undeniably extraordinarily popular. And it has, understandably, and I think quite rightly, got human rights groups worried. Bukele has played fast and loose with El Salvador's constitution. And as I intimated towards earlier, he has locked up a lot of people. Since 2022, 76,000 suspected gang members have been arrested. And most of them have been locked up pretty much indefinitely. And 12,000 of them are currently held in a purpose-built Mega prison. Hundreds of inmates barefoot and stripped down to white shorts scurry into El Salvador's new mega prison, ordered to crouch down on the ground one after another. These alleged gang members are the first prisoners of the complex named the Center for the Confinement of Terrorism. With a highly produced speech to police, President Nayib Bukele celebrating the massive prison's opening, a cornerstone of his war on gangs, also tweeting, they're not scary anymore, are they? So it all sounds somewhat dystopian. But I've also said this situation poses moral challenges for the left. And that's because I don't think we can just dismiss Bukele as someone appealing to a public's basest instincts and their desire for, for retribution and punishment. I don't think he's just whipped up proto-fascist mob, or at least I don't think we can just assume he has and we can dismiss his voters as a proto-fascist mob. Bukele has genuinely made El Salvador much safer, and in the process, given the vast majority of El Salvadorians, a lot more personal freedom. And the context here is key. When he was elected, murder rates in El Salvador were the highest in the world, and they're now one of the lowest in the region. And it's not just murder. People no longer fear extortion by El Salvador's gangs. They can go on about their business without the fear of threats of arbitrary violence. And these things really, really matter. And so I really don't think we can dismiss the 83% of El Salvadorians who elected this tough-on-crime strongman as irrational or reactionary. We have to take them seriously. But clearly, none of this is to ignore the fact that this situation comes with genuine problems and genuine 
risks. Now, locking up people without proper trials is very, very bad. While Bukele has clearly given, I think, the majority of El Salvadorians more personal freedom, he has taken it away from others. Now, some of them, um, I'm sure, will deserve to have been rounded up and sent to prison. Um, Others will have got caught in the crossfire, I again have, have no doubt. And on a more speculative level, Latin America is no stranger to strongmen dictators who pose as effective leaders who can get things done. So we're saying now this was a landslide election, and clearly he is genuinely popular, but if he becomes less popular, could he just become another dictator? Right? He is concentrating a lot of power in the office of the president. A key question here, and one I don't know the answer to, is whether the same effect on crime, which is a priority for El Salvadorians for obvious reasons, could have been achieved another way. Could Bukele have tackled crime without trampling on human rights or the El Salvadorian constitution? Could we have seen a tough-on-crime liberal get the same results in El Salvador? So we wouldn't have to be talking about, you know, oh, well, at least he's, he's, he's given people more personal freedom, but there is this risk of sort of political um, repression in the future, at least. Could we have had, you know, could we have had it both ways? Could we have had our cake and eaten it? Or could El Salvadorians have had their cake and eaten it or do the limited resources of a developing country mean some trade-offs will inevitably have to be made as i say this is a topic that fascinates me um, because i don't know the answer to these questions but i don't think and this is what i am more confident about i don't think they are taken seriously enough in the global north in the rich liberal democracies of the world and this is you know one of the things that i want to explore on this show, on Crash Course, um, people, I think, often look at a country and they say, does it have liberal values? Does it have democratic rights? That's what we care about. Do they have free speech? You know, these are the fundamentals. These are the sacrosanct things. Everything else is secondary. Now, I think probably for the global majority, that's not the priority, right? People, I think, rightly value wealth, security as more important than political freedoms. So it's like the, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Now, obviously, you might say this is a false dichotomy. Um, democracy and liberal rights are the best way to get wealth and security. Again, that's not a crazy thing to say. I'm also not wholly convinced by it. These are the complexities I want to explore. In fact, it's a theme I want to return to in a future series on China. Another thing I'm fascinated by. And it will come up in the next episode I have planned with the brilliant Vincent Bevins on the failed revolutions of the 2010s. Um, But for now, um, on this episode, I was delighted to spend an hour with Nick McNally for a deep dive into the politics of El Salvador and Nayib Bukele. Nick is the America's editor of The Red Line, where his analysis focuses on peace and conflict, crime and security, all in Latin America. Um, He's worked previously with Embrace Dialogue, which is a transnational advocacy organisation monitoring the Colombian peace process. Nick McNally, welcome to Crash Course. Thank you, Michael. It's great to speak with you. Uh, and uh, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in, in Latin America. I mean, I know you're based in Argentina at the moment. Um, have you been to El Salvador? Uh, yes, I have. I, I visited in 2019. Um, and along with the broader sort of like exploration of Central America. Uh, my background is in looking at dynamics of peace and conflict, uh, particularly with regards to Central America and Colombia, looking at uh, structures of organized crime, uh, dynamics of peace and conflict throughout the region. 
So perfect for this conversation here. Um, let's start by talking about the background of crime in El Salvador. So it was undeniably really, really bad. So the homicide rate in 2015 was 106 per 100,000 people. Now that might sound a bit abstract for people, but it was by far the worst rate in the world. And this is what really struck me because by 2018, it had halved to 53.1 per 100,000, but that was still the highest in the world, right? So, so even once it halved, it was still the highest in the road world. Um, so why were murder rates so high in, in El Salvador? I think it's worth contextualizing the sort of trajectory of El Salvador that sort of led to the current dynamics of violence that El Salvador experiences. El Salvador has had a turbulent, troubled history throughout decades and perhaps even centuries without establishing a strong, nonviolent, democratic precedent in society. Inequality, polarization, militarization have set the dynamics of conflict in the country throughout history, whether that sources from the conquest of an indigenous civilization by the Spanish Empire to the subsequent rule of an oligopoly of landowner families and big agribusiness that profiteered from uh, the labor of a majority peasant underclass to the brutal 12-year civil war where right-wing paramilitary death squads clashed with left-wing guerrilla groups, swelling to a significant Cold War proxy conflict in which 75,000 Salvadorans were massacred and many more were subject to an array of grievous violent crimes. El Salvador began a democratic transition in 1992 after the civil war. After the civil war, the country was left awash with weapons, both from the US and from the Soviet Union. Central America was a significant Cold War battleground. There was a civil war in Guatemala and in Nicaragua as well. And so the country is, and the region as a whole is awash with weapons like firearms and landmines. Over 1 million Salvadorans were displaced as a result of the civil war, which was roughly a fifth of the population at the time. And many of these asylum seekers settled in the US, where they were often denied asylum and treated as undocumented migrants. And so you have a group of people who are disenfranchised and facing threats from other gangs in Los Angeles. The Salvadoran migrants formed the MS-13 gang to protect themselves in the city and foster a sense of community and solidarity. So when the U.S. began to increasingly deport Salvadoran migrants back to El Salvador in the 1990s, it sent newly formed gang members back to a society that was weaponized, that was polarized, that was impoverished, which is fertile ground for organized crime groups to recruit and assert territorial control. During the past few decades, broadly, poverty and inequality in El Salvador have remained high by regional standards. There has been a failure to meaningfully grow the economy distribute wealth, invest in social infrastructure and development, and in poorer areas in particular, the presence of police and opportunities for education and employment have been threadbare, which further encourages gang presence. And there are three principal gangs in El Salvador, MS-13 and two competing factions of Barrio 18, and they have been largely against each other since the 1990s. And so you've got these, these well, you say free because there's there's two factions of Barrio 18, but you've got the MS-13, Barrio 18. They were both formed, as you say, I think in Los Angeles, right? And then they got deported back to El Salvador, I think under the Bill Clinton administration. And as you say, they're, they're going back to a country with few opportunities and shed loads of guns. Specifically, though, who is getting killed? So is this sort of, is this gang versus gang fighting over turf? And so you've got members of one gang killing members of another gang and then and then vice versa. Is that what we're talking about here? 
Broadly, that's correct. Authorities observed that homicide rates mostly comprise gang members killed in inter-gang conflicts, which overwhelmingly tend to be young men. Um, gang violence has also caused civilian casualties, but extortion and economic strong-arming are the primary means that civilians would directly experience gang violence. So in terms of everyday life, that services and things like having to pay fees to keep your shop open or to drive the bus on a certain route or having to go to a gang-affiliated provider to buy basic supplies, or being able to unenter certain territories within your community, or otherwise walk the street at night with a degree of safety. Many Salvadorans have lived with all manners of violence, intimidation, extortion, impunity, homicide, femicide, and this sort of indirect psychological impact is one of an atmosphere of fear, restriction, violence and despair that resembles a bad strain of authoritarian rule, albeit not one imposed by the government directly, but by gangs. Yeah, so you got sort of terror, but from gangs, not from the, the state. What were these gangs doing? Because I mean, people think of Latin America, they think of gangs, they think of drug trafficking. But my understanding is that, you know, drug trafficking wasn't really the key sort of money-making strategy of, of the gangs in El Salvador, because it's not actually on the drug trade route. Yes, so I, I think it's it's worthwhile to distinguish between your big sort of drug trafficking organizations that are transnational, operate as corporate syndicates, mostly operational from Mexico and Colombia, and the likes of the Maras in Central America, which are more local organizations than they are transnational. Their bread and butter is extortion of local communities. At a more advanced level, the likes of MS-13 have begun to experiment with cleaning their money, laundering their money into legitimate businesses, but their operations are mostly about asserting territorial control and extortion over local populace. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's not these sort of huge, incredibly lucrative sort of international businesses, which sort of, I, I suppose, as you say, the, that's less a sort of gang than a sort of international sort of informal corporation. Can we compare then the crime in El Salvador to the rest of South America? Is it sort of just a, a very similar story? Or is there something specific about it? I mean, I know that Latin America in general has a huge problem with crime. I was reading uh, an article in the Financial Times from 2019, told me Latin America has 40% of the world's murders with only 9% of its population. So a relatively very violent place. Is El Salvador sort of, can we sort of just say, oh, yeah, it's, it's a Latin American phenomenon that El Salvador fits into, or fit into in the past, because we are going to say that it has changed somewhat. For sure. I think that there are certain factors that the countries in Latin America that have most prominently suffered with homicide, extortion, robbery rates, and general atmospheres of insecurity do have in common. Most comparable to El Salvador directly will be Guatemala and Honduras. Along with El Salvador, they comprise Central America's Northern Triangle region, which has experienced a similar extent of high homicide and violent crime rates and a socioeconomic Molotov cocktail of corruption, poverty, organized crime, displacement, and have experienced similar trajectories of historical development as I described with El Salvador. But there are also similar dynamics in Mexico, Colombia, and Brazil, particularly the nexus of corruption at the state, the deep entrenchment of organized crime via the drug trade and other supply chains, stark inequality. In the case of Colombia as well, there was a protracted civil war for several decades, and there has been a resulting large degree of societal and political polarization as a result. However, I think it's it's important to add some, some color to these descriptions of organized crime and corruption and illicit supply chains, because these are phenomena that spread globally in places that don't experience much violence. 
Specifically, it is the armed conflict of multiple groups vying for control of territory and supply chains in places with low socioeconomic integration and with weak or corrupt criminal justice institutions that that conditions the presence of organized crime to be so menacing and result in such violence. Incredibly interesting. Um, let's move on to Naib Bukele. So he's elected in 2019. He's the guy who's just been um, re-elected, the theme of this show. Um, he is not from one of the main two parties. But before we go into sort of the, the broader politics of him, was his principal sort of pitch to be elected in 2019? Was he saying, crime in El Salvador is out of control. I will control it. Was that his big political message back then? His pitch was more so corruption than I would say a direct focus on organized crime and security. Interesting, Bukele was a break from the FMLN and the Arena parties, both of whom had roots in the civil wars, guerrilla and paramilitary movements, both of whom had governed since the civil war and failed to address the issues of violence and insecurity, despite the decades-long strategy of colluding with gangs to secure short-term safety concessions. And the recent leaders of both parties have been charged with embezzling hundreds of millions of dollars from public funds. So that sort of sets the stage for Bukele, who was previously affiliated with the FMLN, left-leaning party, to establish his Nuevas Ideas, uh, a party that sort of projects traditional left and right-wing labels in favor of a populist rhetoric and a platform that's very directly focused on battling corruption and clientelism. There is a there is a phrase commonly circulated by the party, which translates as money is enough when no one steals. Mugheli presents throughout his first term as a reformist visionary in terms of the dynamics of corruption and crime. He presents as a pragmatist in terms of foreign policy and economics, someone who's pledging neither a great allegiance to the free market or to increased state intervention nor to a particular geopolitical partisan leaning. But he also presents as a populist concerned with the everyday prosperity and well-being of people. I think as we get into Bukele's like first term and you sort of look at the general shape of his policies, tough on crime is conservative catnip anywhere, and that's sort of been mirrored in his broader embrace by conservative movements in Latin America, his embrace of cryptocurrency, a heavy investment on foreign investment versus building domestic industries. This is more suggestive of right-wing versus left-wing politics, but certainly in his like first couple of, in his first pitch to the public, it is about corruption. So he's sort of, he's almost a sort of populist, technocratic outsider. I'll come in, um, I'll clear out the two major parties, I'll sort out corruption, I'll be very pragmatic when it comes to the economy and crime, and you know, I will make life better in, in El Salvador. I mean, it it sounds to me it wasn't a particularly ideological pitch. It was saying, I'm a big problem solver here. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was pragmatism that was ruling the day. And let's talk about his first moves on crime, because, you know, he didn't... The, the first thing he did wasn't just to lock up everyone or, or on the streets. As far as I understand, when he was first elected, he institutes sort of more normal tough-on-crime me- measures. Sorry. So he sort of increased military and police presence in high-crime areas, severing cell phone use in, in prison. So I know that... You know, in many countries in Latin America, organized crime is organized from within prisons. So he sort of said, we have tougher security within the prisons. That will make it harder to organize crime outside of them. But key seems to be that he also made a deal with leaders of the main two gangs. So he sort of said, you guys, you need to reduce crime. You need to sort of stop fighting in the streets. This is out of control. In exchange, I'll give you some benefits. 
when it comes to sort of your prison terms or your treatment in prisons, and then essentially also financial aid. And that seems to work quite quite well. So could you talk about that sort of first period of Bukele's crime fighting, which is essentially to get the criminals on board? For sure. I mean, as you outlined, it's business as usual at first, which is some overtures towards the disciplinarian approach towards crime, but behind the scenes brokering deals. The deal that Bukele offered was similar to those that administrations before him had offered. Leaders of MS-13 and the factions of Barrio 18 would have privileged stays in prison. They would have legal impunity on the outside, and they would not be extradited to the U.S. In exchange, they would use their social control over the gangs in the country to keep homicide rates at a low. And that was pretty successful. Nuevas Ideas climbs in popularity as Salvadoran citizens feel a measure of safety that they hadn't seen for around five or six years previous. But Bukele seems to go back on this agreement at some point. There are MS-13 leaders that accuse him of permitting El Salvador's security minister to arrest members of the gang's leadership who'd previously been under the quid pro quo of, we're fine here, we're not getting arrested, these are the conditions. And so the gangs respond by launching a brutal killing spree that saw 87 people murdered in around three days, most of them civilians, most of them just open fire with the intent to cause chaos. Bukele's response to this was even more drastic. So from March 2022, the government detained nearly 72,000 people up until around the summertime of 2023, flattening the sort of constitutional rights, streamlining the police process, so making it so that due diligence in terms of holding prisoners, in terms of conducting investigations, uh, were really threadbare to conduct all ma- a matter of arrests. So it was this... This breaking of the agreement and the disproportionate response by the gangs to sort of assert control of Bukele that provoked this response from him. Yeah, so I mean, we'll we'll talk more about this the the gang crackdown because that's sort of the major issue when it comes to Bukele. But I do want to focus on how this deal broke down because it does seem sort of interesting to me. So essentially, you have a deal between Bukele and the gangs to not kill each other. <laughs> Are they still extorting members of the public though? Does does extortion go down then as well? Extortion is not meaningfully decreasing at this time. It is mostly around homicide rates and um, other manners of like violent crime in which civilians could be casualties in. Extortion did decrease during this period, but not as much as that we will experience in El Salvador later on. And then the way the deal sort of crumbled, so as something I was reading was saying it was, it was kind of a negotiating tactic from the gangs. Um, so the thing I was reading was saying it was, was less about the fact that the cops sort of arrested some people. I'm sure that's true as well. They were saying it's because the government tried to seize control of two bus routes, which MS-13 had been using for for extortion. And so killing 87 people, as you say, sort of randomly, was almost like a negotiating tactic. It's saying, we need better terms from you, Bukele, or we're going to do these random civilian shoot-ups. And what they'd hoped was that Bukele would sort of get them back in the room and say, okay, I, I can see you've still got leverage here. I'll give you better terms. And actually, he called their bluff and said, well, if you're going to break this deal by killing civilians, I'm going to chuck you all in jail. And, and as you see, their bluff was called, as it, as it were. They tried to raise the stakes and he trumped them. Yes, it was an attempt to place a degree of pressure onto Bukele to sort of get the government in line, as I think previous administrations have been in the servitude of the gangs and would have not necessarily have responded with such a disproportionate degree 
of arrests. This was this was a misfire on their behalf. I think given previous history, they calculated that this would work. This will be a warning shot to, to keep the government in line with what the gangs wanted, which did, did not bear fruit this time. So you, you, you keep using this word disproportionate response from the government. Obviously, that's something we'll debate. Was it disproportionate or was it sort of a genius move? Obviously, lots of the public think it was a genius move. Um, but yeah, we'll move specifically on to that crackdown. So um, the legislature, after that wave of killings, I think it's one weekend, isn't it, where 87 people get killed, they approve a state of emergency that suspends various rights, rights of association and legal counsel, and they approve increased time in detention without charge. So basically, you can lock up people on, 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 on very low levels of suspicion and, and throw away the key, at least for a while. Um, as you say, I think by now, 76,000 people have been arrested, and this means that incarceration in the country goes up to 1.6%. And if you're looking at men between 18 and 30, it's, it's much higher. Um, so I read around sort of 7% of men between 18 and 30 end up in 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 jail. Um, could you give us any more details about how it was determined who would get arrested? So how did they decide you might be a gang member? So multiple factors contribute to the arrests. And in one shade or another, they all suggest the dark side of the cleanup. Surveillance is one element of this as part of Bukele's set of emergency, along with the curbing of protest laws the curbing of due process for arrestees and restricting the capacity for media outlets to report on gang-related news. There was a provision allowing authorities to intercept the communications of citizens without a court order. The Salvadoran human rights groups have observed that the police were issued with quotas, which was encouraging them to arrest people en masse on spurious grounds. The vast majority of arrests happened in El Salvador's poorest and most disenfranchised neighborhoods. Some elements of profiling that were employed, you know, does someone have tattoos? Are they conducting themselves on the streets in a seemingly nervous or suspicious manner? What's their age? What's their gender? Things that could be suggestive of gang membership, but are not in and of themselves evidence. There are reports of union leaders, human rights defenders, and environmental activists also being detained as part of the crackdown, people who have been thorns in Bukele's side. The arrest of one person, whether on legitimate grounds or on most spurious evidence, sometimes encourage the arrest of family members charged with collaboration with gangs. And also, troublingly, there was an anonymous hotline that people could use to report gang members or collaborators. This is where polarization comes back into the story. Within a polarized society, this hotline has been used to settle scores amidst the population. There are accounts of Salvadorans who express anxiety and paranoia around the abuse or potential of abuse for this feature. So it really is like a, a range of factors, but I suppose that, that the binding elements here are the lack of due process and the potential for misuse, whether by the state or by, by civilians. So he's, he's completely run roughshod over, you know, what we would normally think of as sort of individual human rights. Like there are a lot of people getting caught up in this a lot of people getting chucked in prisons and, you know, where, where they sort of live in pretty poor conditions and without having, you know, their rights to a fair trial respected. Um, in terms of what he was trying to achieve, though, it does work. So crime falls from 18 per 100,000 in 2021. So it had already fallen um, significantly from when Bukele was elected in part, as you say, sort of due to these deals with gangs. Um, but then it falls to 2.4 per 100,000 last year. Now, for perspective, for, you know, for, for context here, I think in the UK, we have a murder rate of about one per 100,000 per year. In the United States, it's six per 100,000 per year. So if we're to believe these numbers, 
then crime falls to sort of a third of the rate of United of the United States in Central America. Remember, before it had been a hundred per a hundred thousand. So just a dramatic drop, which no one thought was possible. Um, I do want to pause on this for a moment though, because some people do dispute those numbers, right? People aren't saying we should necessarily trust that it has gone down to two point four per hundred thousand. Could you talk about that? So the fast and drastic reductions in homicide and extortions have broadly been reported at face value, even by human rights groups in the Anglosphere in the West that are broadly critical of Bukele's uh, policies regarding human rights. I personally have seen no evidence that the books are cooked regarding homicide and extortion exclusively. However, they're a salient point, in my opinion, raised by one Central American monitoring group is that these reductions don't accurately convey the complete nature of violence in El Salvador. So of the now 75,000 people who have been detained, around 7,000 people have been released from prison. Testimonies describe assault, torture, starvation at the hands of state authorities. There have been over 200 reported deaths, and that number is likely to be higher considering the tight lid that the government keeps on prisons. Femicides have also not meaningfully reduced in 2023 compared to 2022 and years previous. And certain organizations in Central America also claim that there is no reason to trust the government in their reporting of the numbers. Um, You know, I, I think the general trend may be correct in terms of homicide and extortion exclusively. And I think the broader... A reflection of Salvadorans is that they are enjoying a greater degree of safety and at least the personal freedom that comes with that. But I do think it is worth reflecting on that as a result of the government's crackdowns, there are other forms of violence outside the remit of homicide and outside the remit of extortion and other forms of polarization as a result that have been created. I mean, I, I suppose, yeah, as, as social analysts, as journalists, people can talk about, you know, how there are you know, perhaps one form of violence has been replaced with another. Potentially, we shouldn't take the government at their word. But the reason, and I suppose I'm going to put this to you, is I, I don't want to say this definitively, I don't know enough about it. But the reason why Bukele was elected with such a huge mandate, or seems to have been elected with such a huge mandate, was because for the majority of ordinary El Salvadorians, this policy has just dramatically, radically um, changed their experience of the world because they no longer have to worry about getting killed in crossfire and i think it does seem pretty key that they can sort of they don't have to worry about extortion because obviously being extorted is 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 terrible um i was also reading that this has kind of changed the power balance between civilians and the gangs because before it was the case that if you were getting extorted if you were getting threatened by a gang there's basically nothing you could do because you could tell the cops but then you'd have to testify them a testify against them in court and then you might get killed so basically you know there's nothing you can do there's complete sort of impunity for the gangs now the power dynamics are complete opposite where if someone even if if a gang member just sort of annoys you you can call up this anonymous hotline and they'll go to prison obviously there's some very bad sides to that as well i'm not saying that's a great way of doing um law and order but for the ordinary el salvadorian they've been empowered or the let's not say the ordinary el salvadorian for the el salvadorian that hasn't been caught up in this net of arrests they've been sort of they, they feel more empowered walking down the street they feel more free to go about their business as usual they're probably less worried that their kids are going to get killed when they go outside can you talk about that and does that seem like an accurate assessment of why Bukele has the popularity he has I think that's a really salient point Salvadorans are enjoying via these security measures a new depth of personal freedom they can walk the streets at night 
They can keep the money they'd otherwise lose to extortion. They can move around unthreatened. Bukele himself and his team have almost caught on to this. They have repositioned what is, by many views, an authoritarian transition in El Salvador by saying that, you know, people did not have democracy in the first place, electoral or otherwise, because they had no personal freedom. And so I think that this bargain that the Salvadoran public has made with Bukele has been one where, you know, electoral politics and the veneer of democracy did not deliver the feeling of freedom. They now get to have this. Of course, there are concerns over the longevity of mass incarcerations, and there are sort of new ruptures that emerge in society as a result in that. But I think it is broadly true, whether you dispute the particular numbers or not, that the majority of Salvadorans are enjoying a degree of levity and of personal freedom that they previously were not able to experience. It's perhaps for audiences in the West where the, you know, the, the dynamics of corruption, the dynamics of um, systems of corruption and like control simmer in the background of everyday life, but do not necessarily surface in direct menacing forms of violence may look at the institutional development in El Salvador and sort of, you know, quite rightly are concerned around the human rights violations, around the overwriting of judicial independence and catastrophize and wonder like, why, why could a population of people allow this to happen? It's because when you have faced a degree of oppressive decades-long violence that has restricted every fiber of your existence psychologically, physically, and posed an existential threat. Personal freedom matters more than electoral freedom. And so that's broadly what we're seeing in El Salvador. And that's why Bukele's enjoyed the support that he has. Yeah, and I was, I was listening to the, you know, the Daily, the New York Times uh, podcast just released an episode on this. Um, but on that, on that podcast, they were speaking to someone who's actually had a family member caught up in the wave of arrests. Who you know the person sort of believed them to be innocent, or you know to you know to, they're not happy. They've been rounded up, but they said that actually, even even with that, they still supported Bukele because they were like, yeah, it's unfortunate, but you know this is the collateral that you get if you want to make a country like this safe. So it does, it it, it doesn't seem, and I suppose this is what I always try and sort of resist when I'm discussing this kind of thing in like publicly is the desire I think on the part of Western left liberals to sort of say. Oh, well, they've all just been duped. Oh, yeah, this is just, it's, it's always easy to get elected if you say law and order because you just appeal to people's worst instincts and then they vote for you. But it seems to me that Bukele hasn't necessarily appealed to people's worst instincts. He's appealed to their rational instincts to be able to sort of move around the world freely without fear of arbitrary violence. I mean, obviously, there is arbitrary violence going on, but for most people, there's less fear of arbitrary violence than there was before the 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 gang crackdown happened yes no definitely so and i think there there is an element just on your note of the reception to bukele's government within sort of western liberal spheres i think it ties into what i would see as a as a as a lazy definition of populism as something that you know i was reading a piece in, in the financial times for instance like regarding there was a quote i think from some like government minister in the UK say, oh, the UK's experiment with populism is over. Like, populism always equates to the dismantling of institutions for corruption's sake. And that a sort of direct line to the will of the people is never really represented in populist governments in the West. This is an example where, again, it's, it, it's a quandary for observers because Bukele sort of overwrote 
constitutional term limits so that he could run again in the election, but yet he enjoyed an approval rating of somewhere around 93% by the Salvadoran public. So again, it's it's questionable. Like, should a leader who enjoys a 93% approval rating have to step down? And, you know, and, and in that sense, Bukele's strand of populism has been directly connected to the thing that Salvadorans have cared about the most. In time with his sense of pragmatism and tearing of the rule book and, you know, not to speak euphemistically, treading over human rights along the way, has at the same time delivered the thing that has impressed so much on the consciousness of El Salvadorans. So it's it's an interesting quandary. I think you can understand why Salvadorans would make that deal with Bukele and give him their support, even if there are other concerns in society that have not been abetted, and even if there are groups within society that are suffering anew under Bukele. I think you can probably tell quite a bit by society by how not only it treats its most disenfranchised people, but also the ones who are most inconvenient. So if you are a journalist, if you're a union leader, if you're a human rights activist, if you're a political opponent, if you're a prisoner, if you're the loved one of a prisoner, and you're facing some degree of persecution, surveillance, I think you probably already say that El Salvador is sliding into authoritarianism. But it is interesting, nonetheless, that you, you raise that example of someone who accepts that that is a necessary consequence of delivering almost like a, a utilitarian-based degree of safety around the country. There seems to be like no clear consensus as to this, but the, the, the majority of Salvadorans seem to be content with the way things are moving. Okay, let's take a, a quick break there. I think you've, you've done a great job of sort of explaining why El Salvadorans have voted for Bukele, why it doesn't mean that they're sort of duped idiots for, for voting for this guy and why actually his, his, his policies, while deeply problematic, have had some real positive effects as well as negative ones, of course. I think the big question for our audience is going to be, can this last? So is, is it dangerous to give this guy all of this power? Maybe it works for a few years, but down the line, we will sort of look back at this and say, oh, actually, this was the beginning of a really dark time in El Salvadorian history and potentially even sort of sliding towards dictatorship. We'll also discuss and whether there were any alternatives. Could he have brought down crime in El Salvador and created personal freedoms and, and liberties without having run roughshod over people's or over the rights of, of the people who did end up in jail? To listen to the second part, you'll have to go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. You can sign up for as little as £3 a month or if you're just desperate to listen to the rest of this show, but not sure yet if you want to sign up to the podcast more generally, you can have a seven-day free trial and they're currently being offered on patreon.com.